ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips. And in this episode of Rear Vision, retirement and pensions. And why did it get so out of hand in France? The temperature rose as the sun went down. Across France, fires burned like beliefs, as bright as fever. Young protesters with their rocks and bottles, disappearing in clouds of tear gas, fired by riot police. In Bordeaux, in Nantes, and in Paris. It took minutes for this peaceful protest to turn violent. Hidden amongst the main demonstration, masked protesters who are now taking on the police. Those demonstrations began in January and continued even after the legislation to raise the age of retirement had been pushed through Parliament. Later, we'll hear why the change brought the French onto the streets. We'll also look at the age pension and retirement in Australia and elsewhere. But first, where did the idea of retirement and the need to fund it come from? In 1898, New Zealand became the first country to fund an age pension from general taxation, while Germany adopted an old age social insurance program a year later. Professor Nicholas Barr is a pensions policy expert at the London School of Economics. When pensions were invented, New Zealand non-contributory pension 1898, even then it was a hard competitive international economy and the purpose of pensions was to get doddering workers off the factory floor and the farmyard where they were lowering the productivity of younger workers. So one idea was to get rid of dead wood. You do that in a politically sane and humane way by saying, you're going to stop working. Once you turn 65, you're out of here, but we're going to pay you a pension. So that meant retirement was mandatory and it was complete and it was the cliff edge. That was one motivation. Another motivation was Bismarck in Germany in the late 1800s, where pensions were introduced up to a point to guard against communist political parties gaining power. So there were two different motives there. Many countries introduced age pensions in the early years of the 20th century. In Australia, it was seen, as it was in many places, as a way of helping the poor avoid poverty in old age. People were entitled to the pension at at age 65. Noting at that particular time in 1908 that life expectancy was around that age too. And so the actual entitlement to the pension sounds greater on its face than what actually was the entitlement given the demographics at the time. Dr Emily Mullane, I'm the lead of economic security and governance at Impact Economics and Policy, and I'm also a senior fellow at Melbourne Law School. The pension had an age requirement. It was also means tested. It remains means tested today. It wasn't a universal pension, although there have been moves over time to introduce a universal old age pension in Australia. And there were also these whole series of different requirements. Different states had different requirements. These kind of moral aspects to entitlement. And these included things like being temperate, not drinking, not having a criminal record. And there were also different requirements 
I can't remember which state it was in particular, but I think it may have been Victoria around, in essence, looking after your family and not abandoning your children. Although those moral judgments have disappeared, the age pension is still means-tested, and the age at which you can get it has crept up. From July, it will be 67 for those born in 1957 or later. The age pension is part of Australia's social security system and funded through our taxes. Throughout the 20th century, various proposals were considered to both tinker with the age pension and supplement it with schemes to which workers could contribute. During the course of the 20th century, there were moves to introduce a national, that is, government scheme of superannuation. And it might be surprising to your listeners to know that it was actually those on the conservative side of politics that were seeking at various times during the 20th century to introduce a government scheme of superannuation, which was modelled on principles of social insurance. The Lyons government in 1938 actually drafted and introduced a system, the National Health and Pensions Insurance Act. And this was based on equal parts contributions by employers, employees and the government. But that scheme ended up being unwound with the onset of World War II and the significant imposts that were required on government revenue at the time. It was then a Labor government, the Whitlam government, that sought to introduce national superannuation again in the post-war era. This was the first time that a Labor government had sought to do so. It held an inquiry called the Hancock Inquiry and it recommended a universal old age pension that would be supplemented by a national superannuation component. This was ultimately to be unsuccessful, withered away during the term of the Fraser years. And by the time we get to the election of the Hawke government in 1983, we're in a very different economic circumstances, but also very different economic orthodoxy operating at the time. Employment-based contributory schemes had been around since the 19th century, although usually only for public servants or senior staff in private industry. As age pensions developed during the 20th century, many governments, including our own, opted for schemes where workers and their employers contributed to savings for retirement. During the course of the 20th century, and it was particularly in the post-war era, and I, w- I would really hone in on the 1970s, was the emergence of industrial action around a right to superannuation. And we saw in 1978 the creation of the first industry superannuation fund, a labour union cooperative retirement fund. And during the course of the 1970s and the, and the early 1980s as well, there were more and more union superannuation schemes established. These were hard fought and they were often hard fought against the creation of these schemes by by employers and indeed the right to superannuation was something that was hotly contested. However, it was still the case that before 1992 and the legislation of the superannuation guarantee that coverage of superannuation across the workforce was still only around 78, 
of coverage. And so part of what Keating and others closely around him, I'm thinking of you know Bill Kelty, Ian Ross, the Assistant Secretary of the ACTU, were trying to do through the legislation was increase coverage across the workforce. The rules governing superannuation in Australia have been radically rewritten. In a comprehensive statement that's taken two years to put together, the Treasurer John Dawkins has outlined a scheme which will be compulsory, simpler and also fairer than at present. Here's a lesson in maths from John Dawkins. 9% from our employers plus 3% out of our own pockets equals a 40% retirement superannuation pension. But only after 40 years. The seeds of the super guarantee brought in by the Keating government had been sown during the Hawke government's deal with the unions, known as Accord Mark II, in 1983. The unions agreed to defer a wage rise in return for a raft of measures, including superannuation. Superannuation became part of workers' awards, industrial rather than social policy. In policy wonk, terms, we have three pillars to the retirement system. There's the age pension, which is a baseline poverty alleviation measure and subject to the means testing and and age-based requirements, you have an entitlement to that pension. And then there is the private savings system, the superannuation system, which is a, a supplement to the old age pension. Then there is private savings that you have in addition. I think it's worth mentioning that there also is this kind of fourth part of the system, which is housing, which is really the subject of a whole other (laughs) discussion. But we know the importance of housing to people's income security, particularly in retirement, when their incomes are such that they may not be able to go out and earn other income in, in order to provide for their housing In terms of how these things are financed, the age pension is financed through general revenue taxation. So the taxes that we pay today pay for people's pensions today. Each of us individually puts in contributions for our private superannuation. But there is a very significant role of the state, so therefore all of us, in terms of financing superannuation, and that is because of its highly tax-concessional nature. Superannuation contributions and earnings are taxed at 15%, and superannuation withdrawals above age 60 are tax-free. And so there is, through that, a clear role for the state and a significant one in financing the superannuation system. And so that's how these these elements fit together at its broadest level. Age pensions have always been associated with a set retirement age, and in many jobs, these were once mandatory. In the 1990s, many state governments introduced laws banning compulsory retirement. The Premier says State Cabinet's decision to abolish the mandatory retirement age of 65 will reduce dependence on government handouts. The decision, made at today's Cabinet meeting in Casino, will apply to both public and private employees. The government is to amend the Anti-Discrimination Act to make it unlawful for a person to be retired or threatened with retirement on grounds of age. According to the Premier, many employees forced to retire at 65 
do so reluctantly and often have a great deal more to contribute to their workplace. Back in 1977, though, we'd voted yes in a referendum to set a mandatory retirement age for the judges of the federal courts. To this day, they have to retire at 70. In Australia, it's confined to very unique professions like the judiciary, the armed forces. My name is Alicia Blackham. I am an associate professor at Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne. Other countries are more accommodating of mandatory retirement ages. So the UK, for example, only prohibited mandatory retirement for most workers very recently. And they still allow a mandatory retirement age for any profession or sector, so long as it can be objectively justified as a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. So institutions like Oxford and Cambridge have retained mandatory retirement for academics, for example, on the basis that it's an objectively justified means of opening up opportunities for new generations, promoting diversity, ensuring intergenerational fairness. So the laws differ from country to country. Retirement ages were often introduced in legislation unthinkingly or nearly as an afterthought. So my research has particularly looked at the introduction of retirement ages for judges. And that was introduced actually relatively recently at the federal level through a referendum. And that was driven to some extent by fears of incapacity into older age. You know, older judges were feared to be frail, not up to the job. And so the thought was, well, if we introduce a retirement age, that will ensure judges are capable. Of course, people can experience incapacity at any age. So a fixed retirement age doesn't necessarily address those concerns of capacity. And actually, it would be better to support people to have reasonable adjustments for disability and to do other things that are actually not necessarily linked to age. Approaches to funding old age vary from country to country, although most feature contributory schemes and or tax-funded pensions, sometimes means-tested. Nicholas Barr has advised governments in China, Finland, Sweden, South Africa and the UK on their age pensions. I have a big book called The Economics of the Welfare State. It's got a chapter on pensions. I've done a lot of work on pensions. There isn't a description of the British pension system. In that chapter, life is too short. We offer the world some very good examples of how not to do it. We've had too many reforms with layers and layers of reform. There was a reform proposal in 2005 that was a genuinely good strategic one, and we are now slowly moving towards something that's a bit more sensible. But we've got a mandatory contributory state pension, so all workers have to contribute to the state pension, which is pay-as-you-go. We've then got a wide variety of firm and industry private pensions, which used to be final salary and are now all moving much more towards individual pension accounts, which face the individual worker with a lot more risk. One of the really good proposals, what's called NEST pensions, the National Employment Savings Trust, says we have read 
the findings of behavioural economics. We know that people find it difficult to make financial decisions. They take a short-run view. There isn't the political will to make it mandatory, but we're going to have automatic enrolment. So if I join a firm and the firm has its own pension plan, then fine, I'm in that. If the firm doesn't have its own pension plan, it, the firm is legally required to enrol me in nest pensions, which is an individual account with deliberately very limited choice and with very low cost administration. And I'm automatically enrolled, so it's not mandatory. If I want to get out, I can do the paperwork to get out. But huge findings, you know, multiple experiments show that people stay where they're put. One of the findings of behavioural economics is inertia. So if you automatically enrol workers, they will typically stay. And Nest Pensions is not only very good design, it's been very, very well implemented. So that is a success story. But as I say, we're starting to improve things. But uh, as I say, it's a hodgepodge. Well, the British system obviously has problems. Is there any country that does it particularly well? I've been lucky enough over the last 20 years to do a lot of writing on pensions with Peter Diamond at MIT. And the main conclusion of our first book was that there are sound principles of pension design, but no single best pension system for all countries. So you have a bunch of good, but not perfect pension systems. There ain't no such thing as a perfect pension system. Sweden is interesting. They've got a design in the jargon, it's called notional defined contribution pensions. So it's like the worker having an individual account like super in Australia, but it's actually mainly a pay-as-you-go system so that the contributions of today's workers mostly pay for the pensions of today's pensioners. If I'm a Swedish worker, the state will keep a record of my contributions each year. It will add this year's contribution to previous year's contributions. It will attribute to that accumulating contribution an interest rate which is related to the rate of growth of the economy. So there is this number in the government's computer reflecting my cumulative contributions and this notional interest rate. And when I retire, I've got this notional accumulation and that's then converted into a pension and the size of the pension depends on, obviously, the size of my accumulation. It depends on my age when I retire. And crucially, it depends on the remaining life expectancy of my birth cohort. So that as people live longer and longer, the pension you get from a given accumulation gets smaller. So this is, if you like, running it like individual accounts, but it's actually run by the state. Sweden is supremely good at implementation. It's handled the politics well. So that's an interesting design. But then the Netherlands has got a completely different design. It's a flat rate non-contributory pension financed from taxation together with fully funded collective industry accounts. Canada has got yet another system. It's a national career average salary plan. It's partially funded the funding is managed by the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, which is at arm's length from government. And because Canada is well government, at arm's length from government means at arm's length from government, government keeps out of it. 
So, I mean, there are many different ways of running pensions. There is no perfect way. I think if a country's got a pension system that works reasonably well, it makes much more sense to work within that system to improve it than to have radical reform. The key point about pensions is it's a device that allows people in their 20s and 30s to plan for their old age. Anger that's been growing in France boils over into red-hot rage. Thousands gathered for one final protest before the country's constitutional court cleared the path for the president to bring in his pension reform. The democracy is dead today. We're just more angry to not be listened and we will not go home now. Disappointment, then further destruction, as protesters clashed with police and lit fires in the streets. Retirement age has long been a political issue in France. France's state-backed pension system is built on contributions, with the savings from workers paying for the pensions of retirees. But with the number of workers declining and the number of retirees growing, pension reform is a political lightning rod in France, as Lara Marlowe, France correspondent for the Irish Times, explained to RN Breakfast in early March. France has the earliest retirement age of any country in the European Union. In fact, I think 64 is the lowest retirement age anywhere else, and it goes up to 67, 68. Some countries are thinking of raising it to 70. So President Emmanuel Macron's line is, we're just making ourselves in line with everybody else. And if we have to be competitive in today's economy, and especially if we have to balance the books, we must do this. French people must work longer. So that's the argument. Now, France actually had a 65, age 65 retirement age until 1981, when François Mitterrand, a socialist, was elected president of France. Mitterrand reduced the retirement age to 60. They also reduced the working week from 40 hours to 35 hours. And this was seen as huge social progress, which in, in a way I suppose it is. But the right has always opposed this. Everything in France is very contentious. The French do not do consensus. They don't know how to do consensus. So everything turns into a street battle, basically. Nicolas Sarkozy in 2010 decided that they should raise the retirement age to 62. And he toughed it out. There were a lot of demonstrations and strikes and he just stuck it out and he actually succeeded. I think it took a year or two. So it's really a showdown. The strong majority of people are against raising the retirement age. I think it's about two thirds are against it, but not two thirds of them are willing to go into the streets or put up with, for example, power cuts and endless transport strikes and so on. Despite the strikes and protests, President Macron forced the changes through Parliament in March and the French retirement age is now 64. As we become healthier and start at living longer lives, the idea of retirement has changed. Ideas have changed. Institutions haven't changed fast enough. When retirement was invented, one of its primary purposes was to get rid of unproductive older workers who were reducing the productivity of younger workers. That meant that retirement needed to be mandatory and complete. You turn 65, you have your retirement party, you get your watch, 
and the next day you're pruning your roses. Since then, because people are living longer healthy lives, people have preferences about when they want to retire and they should have preferences about whether to continue to work full-time or part-time. Everybody says flexible retirement options are a good idea, but they aren't happening enough on any scale in any country because of labour market impediments and assorted things that get in the way. But what a lot of people want is the ability, once they reach minimum pension age, to choose whether to carry on working full-time or whether to retire fully or whether to continue to work part-time either in their present job or in another job and to combine some earning with some pension. And Sweden again gets that right. When a worker in Sweden reaches minimum pension age they can choose to take all of their pension or none of their pension or 25 or 50 or 75 percent of their pension. So a worker could say take 50 percent of their pension continue to work, continue to pay pension contributions on their earnings, and then when they eventually do retire, they get a pension that's larger, both because they've delayed taking the second half and because of the extra contributions they've paid. And I think that's a model that few other countries have followed. I've tried to persuade the UK government to do it. The reply I always get is, it's all too complicated. But the reason it's too complicated is we've got this multi-layered system. You've obviously looked at a lot of different age pension systems. How would the ideal system work? I think what you can describe is what a good pension system should achieve. And it's got three core objectives. One of them is what economists call consumption smoothing. So that's a younger person transferring consumption from their productive younger years to their own older self. A second element is insurance. When somebody reaches retirement, if they've got a pension accumulation, they don't know for how long they're going to live. One way to buy insurance is to buy an annuity. And pensions can build in other forms of insurance as well. So you've got consumption smoothing, you've got insurance, you've got poverty relief obviously a pension system to protect people from poverty and old age. Now, if you've got multiple objectives, you need multiple bits to the system. So typically a pension system is made up of more than one plan. So Australia's got the tax-financed pension and it's got super. So Australia's got two bits and then there's industry bits and private bits as well. Sweden has got its non-contributory pension which is strictly earnings related which provides consumption smoothing. It's also got a minimum guarantee pension so people whose contributory pension is too small will get a top up to keep them out of poverty. So I think the way to assess pensions is not by saying here is the best design, here are the things it needs to achieve. It needs to achieve all three of those but it can achieve them in different ways. Nicholas Barr, Professor of Public Economics at the LSE in London. The other guests were Dr Emily Mullane from Impact Economics and Policy and the Melbourne Law School and Associate Professor Alicia Blackham, also from the Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne. Although this rear vision hinged on the French strikes and protests over the pension age, 
There's another reason for it as well. I'm announcing my retirement and would like to acknowledge my colleague Annabel Quince, with whom I've worked on Rear Vision for the last 17 and a half years. Rear Vision, a program and podcast that looks at the history behind the news headlines, was her idea, an inspired one, and it's been my great good fortune to join her on what has been a journey of endless and rewarding learning. My thanks also to the excellent sound engineers at Radio National and the archivists at the ABC, especially Sabrina Lipovich, who worked on Rear Vision for so many years. And of course, my final thanks to you, our listener. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineer Isabella Tropiano for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.